why would we need to do a series on something so basic um, on marriage and family? But see, you just can't talk about marriage and family because there's so much confusion about marriage and family. You've got to talk about God and men and marriage and family. Os Guinness, who is a um, Christian apologist, philosopher, writes a lot of good stuff, has written a book called The Free People's Suicide. And the um, subtitle is Sustainable Freedom in the American Future. He is a Brit. He's lived in this country for a long time. Uh, was, a, uh, was mentored by Francis Schaeffer in the early years of Labrie Ministries. He is a, he's an acute thinker. And as, as, as he is a Brit living in this country, uh, he has a unique perspective. And he quotes Arnold Toynbee, the great historian, and Toynbee's repeated observation that Oskinis quotes is this. Toynbee said, history shows that all great nations commit suicide. Uh, Toynbee was the one who talked about the rise and fall of great nations. What happens to great nations and great empires is that they collapse from within. Most of the great empires never lasted 250 years. Well, if you do the math, it's interesting to watch where we are. Um, it's astonishing to look around and see how quickly things have changed. They've been changing for quite a while, but the change has, has accelerated dramatically and rapidly even in the last 45 to 60 days. Has it not? It is astonishing how we see different leaders and politicians scrambling to get out front of the crowd so that they're not left behind. And principles which they espouse and supposedly held on to, they've just thrown. They're gone. Uh, it is the herd instinct. And it's, it's going off a cliff. And you know it, and I know it. <clears throat> Andreas Kostenberger is a uh, professor at Southeastern Seminary. Uh, he's written a significant book called God, Marriage, and Family. It first came out in 1999. He revised it in 2010. Now, why would he revise it just 11 years later? Because so much happened in that decade. So much change. Uh, Psalms 11.3 says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We are watching the foundations. What, what, what we are watching before our eyes on a daily basis is we're watching a demolition. Uh, every once in a while on the news, uh, they'll show you a clip of a building that has been standing for a long time. And what's going to happen is that building, you know, it took quite a while to build it. And then it's been used for 50, 60, 70 years. But um, it's it's, it's run its course. And it's kind of interesting to watch uh, the science of demolition and watch that thing pancake. And in a matter of seconds, there's just absolutely nothing there. And in days, there's no trace that it ever was there. You see. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In his book, God, Marriage, and Family, uh, 
Kostenberger writes these words. For the first time in its history, Western civilization is confronted with the need to define the meaning of the terms marriage and family. It's like having to define the term water. What is water? Well, that's really not something that's up for grabs. You wouldn't think. You wouldn't think the term marriage is up for discussion. Uh, no one has ever needed to define marriage, redefine marriage. Everybody knows what marriage is until recently. Just in the last 10 years, some radical ideas were thrown out that have become normative. Now they're the norm. Now, if you don't jump on board, there's something wrong with you. You've got thousands of years of human history where marriage has been this, and suddenly in 10 years, it's supposed to be this, and you're supposed to go along and approve. And if you don't, you're called ignorant. Fascinating, isn't it? It's where we are. For the first time in its history, Western civilization is confronted with the need to define the meaning of the terms marriage and family. What until now has been considered a normal family made up of father, a mother, and a number of children has in recent years increasingly begun to be viewed as one among several options of a family. And I mentioned a few weeks ago that the first time I remember this happening is in the, during the Carter administration in the 80s when they uh, came up with this uh, conference. It was called the White House Conference on Families. Now, what's that about? What do you mean families? It should be the White House Conference on Family. No, because it was the first shot across the bow that a family is not what you've always thought a family to be. And by the way, where did we originally get the idea of a family? Where did this stuff come from? See, that's a question to ask. Where did it come from? Uh, he goes on and says, uh, Kostenberger says, the Judeo-Christian view of marriage and the family with its roots in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's the Old Testament has to a significant extent been replaced with a set of values that prizes human rights, self-fulfillment, and pragmatic utility on an individual or societal level. So that's the new standard. Okay. He goes on and says, this is symptomatic of a spiritual crisis. This is all spiritual at its core. This is all spiritual at its root. And, and ultimately, what is it? It's rebellion against God. That's what it is. It's just the latest version. <laughs> he goes on and he says, measured against the biblical teaching on marriage and the family, it seems undeniable that Western culture is decaying. You ever go to the dentist? Yeah. And they'll do a checkup, and they'll take some... Maybe we need to x-ray that, too. You've got some decay here, and you've got some decay here. Now, when I hear that, let me tell you what I do. I ignore it. <laughs> I just do, because I just ignore it. <clears throat> Why? Because I don't want to deal with it, and I don't want to pay for it. I've done that for years. Uh, I don't do that anymore. I've noticed that I'm changing as I get older. Because now when they tell me, you've got some decay, after 63 years, I've started to pick up on a concept. It's best to deal with the decay early. 
Because I've had root canals upon root canals that never needed to happen if I had dealt with the decay early. What would have cost me 150 bucks way back then is now $117,000. Or I just exaggerate for the sake of our dental associates here. (laughs) Who I make fun of, but I really want to see when I'm in pain. You know? But why did you get in pain? Because he told you three years ago it was the cane, but you didn't pay attention. It's undeniable Western culture is the cane. The West Judeo-Christian heritage and foundation, did you catch that? Foundation. Have largely been supplanted by a libertarian ideology that elevates human freedom and self-determination as the supreme principles for human relationship. There you go. That's why the foundations are being destroyed. Um, this, this has been around for a long time. Uh, there was a major earthquake in the 60s in this culture. I was uh, born and raised in California. I've been in a lot of earthquakes. Normally what happens in an earthquake is that you've got this big jolt, you've got this big hit, And then for several days afterwards, you have what you call aftershocks. The aftershocks are not quite as strong, usually, and they diminish with time. The earthquake that hit in the 60s, in the late 60s, was spiritual in in its nature. And what's interesting is that the aftershocks continue and they are accelerating, and they are getting stronger to the point that they have more force and more energy than the original quake. That's why the foundations are being destroyed before our very eyes. This has been going on for a long time, but we're reaching the tipping point. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go back to the foundations. Uh, I did a series uh, last year called Act Like Men, and we were talking about um, what we've all observed with a young generation of, of guys coming up. And that it's not all of these young men, but it's some young men. And as you look at many of them, and there, there are reasons why they are expressing themselves in this way that are not entirely of their own making. But nevertheless, we have a number of young guys coming up, and, and I don't mean to bore you with this because I talked about it for so many weeks last year, but we have a number of young guys that are attempting to put off the responsibilities of manhood, and they are attempting to prolong adolescence. The adolescent years are the teenage years uh, that typically are characterized by irresponsibility. And what we see is young guys wanting to continue the carefree years of adolescence and irresponsibility rather than embrace the responsibility of manhood. And I made the statement, historically, there have been five markers that transition a young man into a man. And those five markers are you finish your education. Secondly, you move out of your house. Thirdly, you work and earn your own money. Fourth, you get married and you stay married till death do you part. And then lastly, number five, 
you have children and responsibly father those children. Those have been the five markers from adolescence to manhood. And they've been there for generations and generations and generations and generations. So, in 1910, when Harry Brown was 14 years old and in school, and the principal knocked on the door and motioned for him to come out into the hallway, and he talked with the principal, and the principal told him he was so sorry to tell him that his father had just had a heart attack and died. That was 14-year-old Harry Brown's last day of school in 1910 because he had a mother and four sisters and a handicapped brother. So what did he do? He wanted to go on to high school. He wanted to play baseball and basketball and football. He never did that. He wanted to go to college. He never did that. He eventually wanted to go to law school. He never did that because at the age of 14, someone had to become a man and take care of his mom, take care of his four sisters and his handicapped brother. So he buried his father, and within the week, he'd gotten a job with Standard Oil in Central California around the oil fields of Taft, California, and he went to work. And that was his last day in school. Now, why did he do that? Because he knew he was supposed to. Because that's what men did. He had no adolescence. He had no spring break. He never went to the prom. He was in the oil fields working. Now, those five markers you got to ask the question, uh, and they all make sense to us. You see, you finish your education, not everyone needs to go to college. But if what you want to do requires a college degree, then finish college. Uh, if you don't finish high school, uh, you're just shooting yourself in the foot, because nobody's going to hire you, and you'll never get a job worth anything. So finish high school. And if you don't finish high school, uh, you're not real smart. Is that too harsh? It's, and, and the thing is, you're smart enough to finish high school. See, that's the thing. You're smart enough to do it. You got the goods to finish high school. But you think you can get by without it. No, you really can't. So go back and finish. Well, I, I don't want to go back. Well, get a GED. Anybody can get a GED. Just go do it. And then you got a credential to get yourself a job. Uh, you can get a job in the trades and make really good money. You can be an electrician, you can, get a plum, you can be a plumber. Those guys do really, really well for themselves. Um, you don't have to go to college for that. But whatever it is you want to do, get your credential. And you say, well, so you know, it, it doesn't matter what your education is, but whatever is required to do the job, go get it done. Um, now, okay, I don't want to beat this horse. But those five principles, finish your education, move out of the house, work and earn your own money, get married, have children. Those five principles all make sense. Here's my question. Where do they come from? And why did Harry Brown in 1910, who was my maternal grandfather, why did he know that's what he needed to do? Because he, it, was just, it was in the culture back then, that's what you do. But we've lost it, because the further you get away from God's principles in the Word of God, the further you get away from God and the further you get away from his truth, the more um, you live unwisely. And we have left. And so there is a void that used to be in the culture. Uh, it used to be that there was spiritual capital. Even if a family 
they themselves weren't Christians. They were living off the spiritual capital of a grandfather or grandmother or great-grandfather or great-grandmother who did know the Lord, and some of those values carried over just like an inheritance carries over. Am I making any sense? But that's becoming less and less the situation. Now, so the five principles that you say, yeah, that makes sense, from the markers of being a young, a young man, uh, an adolescent man, to becoming a maternity, those make sense. Where do they come from? They come from the four creation ordinances that God put in place in the book of Genesis for men. That's where they come from. So let's turn to Genesis 1. See, we're going back to foundations. This is critical stuff. This stuff comes from somewhere. Uh, the five principles of transitioning from adolescence to manhood, those didn't come from some congressional committee. They didn't come from some faculty lounge at some Ivy League school. Where did they come from? They came from the beginning. Genesis is the book of beginnings. So we go to Genesis 1, and as you know, the book of Genesis has been savagely attacked for 200 years, <clears throat> as has the whole Bible. You can't trust it. It's not, his, it's, not, it's not factual. Oh, you don't believe the Bible, do you? You don't believe that book. Well, what's interesting about that is that Jesus believed in Genesis. When Jesus was asked a question about divorce, he immediately took him back to the first three chapters, to the first two chapters of Genesis. Jesus had no problem with going to Genesis. He had no problem whatsoever. Why did he have no problem with it? Because he was there in Genesis. He was the creator. He was the one who created. He was the one who spoke the worlds into existence. The Father and the Son and the Spirit created. Uh, if you look at Genesis 1.27, you've got the six days of creation. And you get to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Let us. Who's us? Well, Scripture interprets Scripture. We, we know we have God the Father, we know that we have God the Son, and we know that God, we have God the Holy Spirit. Now, if you just keep your finger there for a minute and go over to John 1. Yeah, I'm not sure we can go back to Genesis. Well, actually, we can go back to Genesis. John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That explains part of the us back in Genesis 1. You guys following this? It's called the Trinity. You say, I don't get that. Join the club. You say, I don't understand that. Join the club. But it's very clear in Scripture, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You can make a little diagram, and I'll just do it here in thin air. So you've got a circle right in the middle, and you, can put, and you can put God. And then above it, you put Father, and then to the side, you put Son, and then to the side, you put Spirit. Okay, so in the middle is a circle that says God. Above it is like a, you know, kind of like a, a spokes pointing to a hub and a wheel. So you got the hub and you say God. Above it you say Father. And then you draw a line from Father down to God, and then on that line you write the word is. The Father is God. And then over on the side you got the Son. And you draw a line to the hub that says God, and you say the Son is 
God. And then over here, on the other side, you have spirit, and you draw a line to the hub, and you say the spirit is God. Okay? All right. Now, so now you've got a connection. But now you've got Father up here, and you draw a line from Father down to Son, and you say Father is not Son. The Father is not the Son. And then you go from the Son and draw a line over to the Spirit, and the Son is not the Spirit. And then the Spirit, you draw a line up to the Father, is not God, but all three of them are God. You say, I still don't get it. Join the club. But it's everywhere in Scripture. See, just because we can't comprehend it doesn't mean it's not true. It just means it's beyond our bandwidth to fully and completely comprehend it. God is incomprehensible, but God is knowable. Uh, <clears throat> verse 2 of John 1.1. 1, 1. And, and see, the reason we're reading John and we're tying it in with Genesis, it's all the Word of God. It's all connected. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Watch this. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Speaking of Christ. Look at verse 10. It speak, actually, if you look at verse 6, it's talking about John the Baptist. It says, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all men might believe through him. He was not the light. John was not the light. But he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Speaking of Jesus. And the world did not know him. He came to his own. Those who were his own did not receive him. But as many received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Verse 14. And the word, John 1, 1, up in verse 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. You look at the scriptures, John was the cousin of Jesus, and John was conceived, what, six months before Jesus was conceived? But John says he existed before me. Why? Because he's God. He's the God who created, back in Genesis 1. So this is why... When they would come to Jesus and throw questions at him, Jesus had no problem going back to Genesis 1 and 2 because Jesus was there in Genesis 1 and 2. Am I making sense? Okay. 26 of Genesis 1. This is called Bible study. So we're flipping around a lot. Okay? Then God said, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. All right, now I'm going to show you four creation ordinances. These four creation ordinances are the foundations 
of human existence. They are the foundation for men. They are the foundation for women. They are the foundation for marriage. They are the foundation for family. They are the foundation of civilization. These are foundational principles, and we're watching them being demolished before our very eyes. Okay? And the five principles, remember, of adolescence to manhood, where do those five principles come from? From these four creation ordinances. Are you guys tracking with me? Okay. Here's the first creation ordinance. Genesis 1.28. The first creation ordinance is to have children, because the first couple, they were only two people on the face of the earth. And what does God say to them in 1.28? God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, I will say this to you. What's, what's interesting about these creation ordinances is that the world system is always against them. So what do we hear all the time um, in the media? What do we hear all the time in the academic world? Is We hear this. The earth cannot handle any more people. You hear this all the time. Yet God says, be fruitful and multiply. Because you see, God is big enough, he can handle. He can handle this. You say, yeah, but you've got starving kids in Africa. You bet you do. And why is that? It's not because there's not, not enough food production. There's food being sent there in droves. The problem is graft and corruption among politicians, graft and corruption among officials. There's stuff being smuggled. There's stuff being sold in the black market. There is corruption in the human heart. It's not that there's not enough to feed. I'm not saying there's not famine and there's not this and that. Those things happen. But I'm saying, generally speaking, we, we live in an age where we have unbelievable resources. But so often those resources are jettisoned off because of somebody's graft or somebody's corruption or somebody's Swiss bank account. Okay. So they say, don't have kids. God says, have kids. It's right there in the text. So the first creation ordinance is to have children. Okay. Second creation ordinance uh, is the ordinance of work. It's also in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Watch this. And subdue it. Subdue the earth. Watch this. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gave the man dominion over the earth. God created the earth and the resources for the man and for his offspring. Okay? Um, look at uh, Genesis 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. There was a garden that needed to be cultivated, that needed to be stewarded, that needed to be taken care of. Um, that was his work. What I'm saying to you is the second creation ordinance is the ordinance of work. God created work. Men are supposed to work. Uh, once again, it's interesting the times that we're living in, how many people, and you read about this, on a daily basis are no longer working. We're not talking about people who are legitimately disabled. If, there's, if someone's legitimately disabled and can't work, they need their, our assistance. We want to help them. We want to do what we can do to... If they could, they'd be working. But see, we've reached a tipping point here where it's almost to your advantage not to work because the handouts are coming every time you turn around. It's just, it, 
why would you go work when you don't have to work and you can just take this and take this and take this? Somebody's working, but you don't have to work. And then we wonder why there's, no, there's not any sense of worth or legitimate esteem or dignity. You want dignity? You want self-esteem? Go work. Because you're, 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 you're fulfilling your God-given mandate is to be productive. It's not to sit on your tail all day. Okay. Once again, this is why I don't pastor. This is why I, they kind of keep me confined here on Wednesday nights, you know. This all makes sense, though, doesn't it? It's out of the found, it's, it's, out of, it's, it's a creation ordinance to work. Okay. The third creation ordinance is the ordinance of the Sabbath. If you look at Genesis 2, thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. The Lord blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work where God had, which God had created and made. Now here's the point. God did not rest because he was exhausted. He was just flat out worn out from creating the world. He just had to take a day off. I mean, he couldn't even see straight. Listen, God doesn't get tired. God doesn't get exhausted. God has never lost an ounce of energy. God didn't rest for him. God rested for us. You ever heard of the principle, you ever heard of the, this concept, 24-7? That's the American pace of life. Guess what? You can't go 24-7. You can't do it. You absolutely can't. You can't go 24. Oh, you can maybe do it. You can pull an all-nighter. When you're in college, maybe you can stay up two nights. You can't do that anymore. Shoot, you can't even get in a rocking chair and stay away for 20 minutes. <laughs> you watch a ball game, you're out in 10, in 10 15, 20 it's really appealing to watch a guy in a rocking chair. Well, you're worn out. What have you been going, 15 hours? It's about your limit. 17, is that it? You can't go as long as you used to. You sure as heck can't go 24 and you can't go seven, but we try. Have you ever heard of a workaholic? A workaholic is a guy who ignores the creation ordinance of rest. Now, there's a lot more to the Sabbath. Uh, the Sabbath was the sign of the, in Exodus 31, of the covenant God made with Moses for Israel. And uh, the Sabbath was historically Saturday. If you go to Israel, they still shut everything down on Saturday. It's kind of wild to be there when they do it. It's really interesting. Uh, Christians began to celebrate their day of worship on Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. You get into the New Testament, and the principle of a Sabbath, I think, still remains. But if you read Colossians and then you read uh, Romans, what is it, 14? It says one man regards one day above another. Another man regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. The principle seems to be in the New Testament. It doesn't matter what day you take off, but you need to take a day off. And if you don't do it, eventually we have a phrase. It's called burn out. And if you don't take a day and you ignore it and ignore it and ignore it and ignore it. There's a point where you just burn out and then what happens? You just got to shut down for how long? It's interesting in the Old Testament there was only a Sabbath day there was a Sabbath year. 
And God had him rest the land the seventh year. And he said, don't worry about it, because you, you, so what do we do for crops? I'll give you enough in the sixth year to get you through the seventh and into the eighth when your crops come in. Orthodox Jews in Israel still practice the Sabbath year. Israel never observed it. In fact, a case can be made, they didn't observe it for 490 years. Um, and then God took him into captivity in Babylon. Anybody know how long they were in captivity in Babylon? 70 years. You can pay me now, or you can pay me later. Remember that commercial? God got his Sabbath years. Um, so, so God's not a slave driver. He's the guy that invented a day off. Okay, so take a day off. The fourth creation ordinance is the ordinance of marriage, Genesis 2, 24 to 25. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. That's interesting. What was one of the principles of making the shift from adolescence to manhood? You leave. You leave. What was one of the other principles? You work. Yeah, but what is finish your education? If you don't finish your education, you can't get the job you're supposed to have. So that's tied in. See, these are all tied into creation ordinances. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. These are the four creation ordinances. When you get away from the ordinances of God, when you get away from the truth of God, what happens is, whenever you get away from the truth of God's word, and the further and further you get away, whether economically, there are certain principles in God's word about finance. Now, a case could be made that we are living in a time in this country where the fundamental principles of finance and of economics, which come out of the Bible, those fundamental principles have been ignored. And look how well this is turning out. It's absolutely insane, is it not? We say, this, 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 this is beyond belief. Yes, it is. There's no sense to this. No, there is no sense to it. When you say there is no sense, what you mean there's no common sense. Well, what is common sense? Common sense is a synonym for wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of so you ignore what God says about economics? Guess what? You're going to crash and burn in the ditch. And we've all had our own experiences with that. And we learn lessons the hard way, most of us, don't we? Yeah. Same thing is true with family. Same thing is true with relationships. Now, uh, I hope you're adequately depressed by now. But I'm not the one who depressed you. I'm just simply acknowledging what you see and feel in your heart, don't you? It's, it's everywhere around us. We are in a situation, we're in a Romans 1 situation, Romans 1.18 to the end of the chapter, that when you suppress the truth in unrighteousness about God, when you deny that God is there, although the evidence is everywhere you look that he is there, and you worship the creation. You're not supposed to worship the creation. The creation isn't over you. We're over the creation. But see, once again, the world system is against the creation ordinance of God. 
oh no, you can't go get those natural resources. Why not? Because they're sacred. They're not sacred, they're for our use. But when you're away from the truth of God, you don't use any sense. You see, this stuff is all spiritual in its nature. Okay. So we're in a system, and here's what aggravates us, and here's what worries us. We see the creation ordinances of God being ignored on a daily basis in basically every single area of life. And we know we cannot survive. We can't do it. Suicide is being committed. Now, here's the deal. Christ has come into our lives, and he has opened our eyes. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the truth of the gospel. At a certain point, Christ has come into our lives. He has pulled us to himself. He has opened our eyes. He has given us faith to trust in Christ for forgiveness of our sins. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that any man should boast. Salvation in Christ is Christ plus nothing. You bring nothing, nothing. There are no works, it's Jesus alone. Jesus is the Savior. He is an adequate Savior. We bring nothing to the table. He died in our place. He died on our behalf. He redeemed us. We've been adopted into God's family, Romans 8. All right. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, any man should boast. So now we've come to know Christ. And then we go on to verse 10. And I seem to quote this verse about every other week. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God created beforehand that we might walk in them. Not good works to be saved. You were saved in verse 8 by grace. But once we come to know Christ, he regenerates us. He gives us a new heart. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And so now what he has is, he has a plan for us, not only to save us from our sin, but he has a plan for us to now use us and to use us for good as we serve him and we love other people. They ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And the second is the same as the first. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because, see, this is what happens. When the Lord comes into our lives, he redeems us. And then watch this. Through a changed man with a changed heart, he wants to use you to redeem others by the power of Christ that's in your life. I want to show you something very interesting. How many of you guys are married? Let's see your hands. <clears throat> okay, most of you. Um, some of you guys didn't raise your hands because you were married but your wife has preceded you uh, in death. And that's a hard thing to experience. I, I, I see guys in here and we've talked and you're living alone and you had a wonderful marriage for many, many years. That's a very hard place to be. Others of you were married, but you're divorced. Uh, we have shifted from a culture of marriage to a culture of divorce in less than 40 years. Divorce basically was unheard of up until the 50s. Now it's commonplace. One of the reasons is, is that we undercut our laws because we believe marriage was important because God said marriage was important. 
but because of self-fulfillment and libertarian views, where who are you to tell me what's right, we undercut marriage and we made marriage um, easily disposable. It's like a throwaway tissue. So your spouse, you want to stay married and you want to work through, everybody's got their stuff, but you want to, you're in for the long haul. But what's happened is we've got ourselves in a situation now where uh, we got all men here, so, let's, so a wife can come home and say, I'm done. And, and you know what? You, you have no recourse. There's not a cotton-picking thing you can do. And it didn't used to be that way. And a guy can come home and say, I'm done, and leave his wife and kids, and it happens both ways, happens all the time. That's not right. There are some guys here, and you're divorced, and you didn't want the divorce. So you're not married. There are single guys here, and uh, for most of you guys that are single, uh, God's plan for you would be that you would marry and find a godly woman and marry her and stay married for the rest of your life. Some of you are on your second or third marriage, and you've got regrets, and oh man, I messed up. Steve, I wish I had heard this 25 years ago. Well, you didn't, or maybe you did and you ignored it. So, have you come to Christ? Have you run to him in repentance? then old things have washed away. All things have become new. There's nothing you can do about the past. Forgetting what lies behind, I press forward to the high calling following Christ. So you're on your third marriage? Make this one work. You can't live in regret for the past. All you can do is take it to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm all in with you today. Would you bless me and would you guide me? And those broken relationships, maybe with kids? You say, well, my wife's remarried. So be it. But if you, got, you guys get what I'm saying? Here's what I want to show you. God's in the business of redeeming people. And you know, if you look at Genesis 2, and what happens in Genesis 2, is that he kind of zooms in on the creation account of the man in uh, Genesis 1. He gives us more detail. Look at... Uh, Two seven. Am I boring, you guys? Are you still, still with me? Is this adding up? Okay. Because I think American Idol's on. I don't know what time. And I hate for you to miss that. You know. Verse 7 of 2 of Genesis. Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and man became a living being. It's still that way. If he doesn't give you breath, you die. You're dependent on him for every breath. You're dependent on him to swallow your food and not choke. You're dependent on him for everything. Aren't we? But we forget it. Eight, the Lord God planted the garden towards the east in Eden. And there, watch this, he placed the man whom he had formed. And then you have a description of the garden in 9, all the way down to 14. It was an amazing place. It was flawless. It was without sin. It was perfect. Um, verse 15 of 2 of Genesis. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Work is a creation ordinance, even before sin came into the world. Okay. Now, sin's going to come into the world in Genesis 3. 
and it's going to break everything up, and it's tragic, and we're still living with the fallout from sin that occurred in Genesis chapter 3. But here's the deal. Jesus, the Savior, comes and redeems broken people, and he redeems broken individuals. And he takes men, and he takes broken men, and, and we're all broken men, and we're all sinners. And what he does, he comes in, and he turns us into new men. And he has a work for us to do. Okay? Um, now I want to take a step back. Things are broken. What God loves to do is take a broken man, bring him to Christ, bring him to the Savior, give him a new heart, give him a new mind. Take this man who is immature and start moving him to maturity. Take this man who is selfish and start moving him to selflessness. He takes this man and starts conforming him into the image of Christ. This takes years and years and years, and it's slow growth. It's not microwave stuff. You don't pop in the microwave for three minutes and pop in spiritual maturity and come out spiritually mature. It's slow growth. It's a long obedience in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson said. So I'm going to say to you guys, just as God formed the man in 15, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. I want to suggest something to you. <clears throat> I want to suggest to you that you have your own garden. The garden had boundaries on it. Uh, the, the, the garden that God put Adam into um, had boundaries, it had borders. Uh, it, it was real, real estate. I want to say this to you. God has placed you, and you may not view it as a garden, but God has placed you on some real estate. Uh, it is your area in which you live. It is your sphere. It is, um, it is where you live your life. So let me ask you this. I want you to think about the sphere of your life, the literal physical uh, and geographical boundaries of your uh, normal life. So in a given week, all right, first of all, where do you live? Okay. All right, you know where you live. All right, now let me ask you this. Where do you work? Okay, so you drive to work. How far? All right, so you spend a lot of time at work. Okay. Uh, where do you go to church? Well, you're involved in your church, Bible teaching church. Okay, great. You're here on Wednesday night. Okay, good. Okay, that's part of your real estate. That's part of your sphere. Um, within that sphere, see, this is where, these are your boundaries. This is where you live. This is where you function. Every once in a while, you'll go outside, you'll travel. This is pretty much your life, all right? Think of that as your garden. What is your job as a man? God has placed you in that garden as a vice regent, as a representative of him. That's why he's placed you there. He has called you to leadership in your sphere of influence. Flip over with me to Job chapter 1. I want to show you this in Job. Because we get up in the morning, we go to work. Um, same old, same old, you know, you make your money, you do this. And then, what's life all about? Is it... Uh, 
Is it just seeing how much money you can make? Is it just seeing how much you can accumulate? Is it seeing how big of a house you can get? I mean, how many cars does it take to make you happy? Not too far away from where I live, a, uh, a guy built, I mean, it's just an incredible place. It's an incredible place. It has 11 garages. 11 garages. And I found out the guy was single. I mean, if I had to guess, I'd say that house was 8,000, 9,000 square feet. I've never been in it. I know someone who's been in it. 11 garages. And you got a single guy living there. How many cars does it take to make you happy? And here's the thing, a lot of guys that got car, a lot of guys that have their own car museums. I mean, how many more cars do you need? Well, I just need that one. They said to John Rockefeller, how much would it take to make you happy? Just another million. <laughs> just another million. That's kind of a dead end street. Life is more than accumulating. Life is more than getting stuff. So what is life? Life, this is eternal life, knowing God, this is John 17, knowing the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. You love him and you love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to see that on your piece of real estate, in your sphere, there is a reason you're in your sphere and there is a responsibility that God has given you to function in and to give an account to him as a steward, as Adam was a steward of his garden. This is serious stuff. And it is in this sphere which God has given to us that ultimately we find meaning. You won't find it anywhere else. Uh, Job 1. Let me show you Job's sphere. And let me get to Job. You start thinking about this, this is pretty wild stuff. <clears throat> I'm almost there. Remember, I'm slow. I like baseball. It's slow. I even turn the pages slow now. Chapter 1, New Bible, you're right. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and the man was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Okay, you know about Job. He's known for his suffering. Now, in verse 2, it's going to start laying out his sphere. All right? Watch this. This was his sphere. This was his life. Because you, it's not only comprised of, of where you go and where you work and where you function, but it's comprised of people. Okay? Most of you have a wife. Most of you have children, grandchildren. Okay. Watch his sphere. Verse 2. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. And then it talks about his economic condition. And back then you wanted to have a lot of livestock. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. He was a great man. He loved God. He was the real deal. Verse 4. Now I want you to note something. Now I'm going to go ahead and tell you this. As a man... Your work before God of tending your garden involves two responsibilities. Number one, your first responsibility is your family responsibility. It's to oversee the spiritual condition of your family. Um, 
The man is responsible for the family. You have two equals. Male, they were both created male and female. But Adam was responsible for the relationship. Uh, when Satan came in to tempt in, verse th- in, in chapter 3, he didn't tempt the man. He basically abrogated God's plan by going to the woman first. Because the husband is head of the wife, just as Christ is head of the church, Ephesians 5. So among two equals, one is the head. And the man is responsible for the relationship. And when they both sinned, she sinned first, then he sinned. They, they realized they were naked, they cover themselves up, and they try to hide from God. And when God calls out to them, who does God call out to? Now, who sinned first? Eve. Who does he call out to? Adam, because Adam was responsible for the relationship. So you are responsible, number one, for your family. You have a family responsibility. Number two, you have a social responsibility. I'm going to prove this to you. Notice the family responsibility comes first. Verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So what do you got? Seven sons? Three daughters? This is a family that's together. They can hang out together. This is a good thing. God likes families to be together. Now, are they sinners? Yeah. Do they have their stuff? Yeah. Do they have their disagreements? Yeah. But you see, you work your stuff out. And if there's stuff in a family, the father is responsible to make sure that if something is in a relationship is festering and there's a boil, it's the father's job to make sure that thing is handled. It's not the wife's job. It's your job. Because you're the spiritual leader and I'm the spiritual leader of my family and too often we just leave that to the women folk. No, that's man folk stuff. You watch the condition of your family spiritually. Now, I'll prove it to you in the next verse. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them. Consecrate who? His kids, his seven kids, who would feast in verse 4. Rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. He, it, what's, what this is a reference to is Leviticus 1, verses 1 through 5. That in this day, in the Old Testament, for sin, you would offer a burnt offering of an animal to atone for the sin. It was a type of the sacrifice of Christ who was to come. So what, Job, what did Job do? Watch what he did. On a weekly basis, he would rise up early in the morning, offering burnt offerings according to the number of all his kids, he would say, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their heart. Perhaps they've sinned, they haven't done the burnt offering. So what would Job do? He'd make sure a burnt offering was done for each of them in their place. And look at this. Thus Job did continually. He was watching over his family responsibilities because that is his job in his sphere. He's responsible for that. Doesn't mean the families don't get into stuff and there's not breaches and all that. This happens because we're all sinners but you don't let it just go. You handle it. You deal with your stuff. Am I making sense here? You're not passive. The enemy wants you passive. Your job is to be active. It's to take a step. That's your job and it's my job. Don't ignore it. Step into it. Give leadership. Well, that's gonna create some conflict. You already got conflict. You're not gonna heal it without some pain. It's like doing surgery. 
Got to have a little pain. Oh, somebody busted their leg. Well, you're going to have to set that leg. Ah! And then they're okay. okay. You see Job, how his family came first? And he took the, okay. Now, go to Job 29. <clears throat> In Job 29, now Job, the book of Job is all about suffering. But what Job does in Job 29 is that Job looks back on his life when he was in his prime before he was afflicted. Okay? And he says this in Job 29, verse 2. Oh, that I were as in months gone by, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone over my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. As I was in the prime of my days, when the friendship of God was over my tent, when I wasn't suffering, when I wasn't being tested, when the Almighty was yet with me, and watch this, and my children were around me, because you see, his children all died in the natural disaster in Job, two, uh, Job 1. Watch this, verse 6. Back in the days when my steps were bathed in butter, we'd say when everything he touched turned to gold. It was the good life. Back then, verse 7, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and hid themselves, and the old men arose and stood. Why do they do that? The princes stopped talking and put their hands on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, hushed, and their tongue stuck to their palate. In other words, they wouldn't speak. When Job showed up at the gates, and the gates back then was where all the action happened. It was the courthouse. It was the title company. It was uh, the banking center. Everything happened at the gates. And when Job showed up, everybody stood up, and nobody said a word until Job spoke. Why? Respect. Respect. Now the question is, why did they respect him? Watch this. Because of his responsibility and care for those on the edge of his sphere, other than his family, who were in need and were afflicted and weak and had no resources, and he stepped in and helped them, and because of the power of his example, they respected him. He lived out his faith in practical ways. Look at verse 12. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help. See, Job had all this stuff. Yeah, he did. But he did just use it to buy more and more stuff and accumulate more and more. And then I got 11 garages. Chump, I'm going to build another place with 22 garages. I'm going to have my own car museum. I'm going to do that. Did he just do that? No, what did he do with his money? Watch this. I delivered the poor who cried for help. Is there a legitimate need? And I got it. Let me help out here. And I helped the orphan who had no helper. Back then, orphans, I mean, it was, it was over. You had no life. It was over. And what did Job do? Well, he was their helper because they had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to die came upon me. Some guy's ready to die, and, and the blessing, and he blesses Job. Why? Because Job steps in, and look at the next line, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. If there were no resources, Job was going to step in and make sure there were resources because he had resources, and he wasn't going to hoard them. He was going to love his neighbor as he loved himself. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Watch this. I was eyes to the blind. 
So the man who couldn't see, I would help him. I was feet to the lame. Look at 16. I was a father to the needy, and I investigated the case which I did not know. So if there was a situation and there was a problem, I made sure that my funds and my finance, they can't hire someone, an attorney, to look into it. I'll hire an attorney. We'll look into it. Let's find out the facts here. He came to the aid of those who had no resources or no help. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. Sometimes there are, there are predators on, on helpless victims. Job would step in and he would handle it. He would confront. He would step up to the plate. This is what godly men are supposed to do. You don't look the other way and ignore it. Verse 18, then I thought, I shall die in my nest. I shall multiply my days as the sand. In other words, he's saying, I thought my life would always be like this. But he didn't know he had a period of suffering. Now, after we went through the period of suffering and forgave his friends, God gave him everything back double. This was a test. Verse 21, to me they listened and waited and kept silent for my counsel. Verse 25, I chose a way for them and set as chief and dwelt as a king among the troops as one who comforted the mourners. Do you see this? Do you see the first, uh, how he handled his turf, how he handled his real estate as a man of God? Number one, he was responsible for his family. And secondly, there was a social responsibility for those who were in trouble and needy. See, this is why you see guys that have stuff and they're rich and they're wealthy, and what do they do? They kill themselves because there's no meaning and there's no satisfaction. Jesus said, give and it shall be, give it unto you. Press down, shaking together, running over. If you're depressed, go help somebody. Go serve somebody. It's not about accumulating, it's about giving. I remember when I was a little kid, memorizing the King, King James Bible. Don't just lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt. But lay up yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust doth not corrupt. There's more to this world than this life. Huh. See, this is the joy of being a man. This is the joy of being a man who is walking with God. You are Christ's representative in your sphere. Can you help everybody? No, but there are those that you're aware of in your sphere. And if they have a legitimate need and you can help them, help them. So I've known guys, they and their wives, you know, they had a spare bedroom and here's a young teenage gal and she got herself in trouble, got herself pregnant, she had nowhere to go. Well, we got a spare bedroom, come on in. You just stay with us, took care of everything. And that baby was delivered. That's what I'm talking about here. Or, or a single mom who's by herself and she's got a couple kids and absolutely no means of support. But if she could actually go to school and finish it out in three semesters full time, instead of stringing it out for six years, she could actually get that done and, and get a job and do all that. And I've seen, hey listen, we're gonna help you do that and we're gonna cover that tuition and we're gonna make sure your kids are taken care of and da da da, and let's just go get this done in three semesters. That's what I'm talking about here. You say, but Steve, you know, I mean, you know, hey, this economy. Okay, yeah, I know. But the greatest financial principle in the history of the world is give, and it shall be what? Oh, it's counterintuitive. You give, and what does God do? He gives to you. 
Well, I'm not sure I could do that. Well, why don't you give it a shot? Might be interesting. Can I show you the principle one more time? <clears throat> Is this making any sense? God, God brings these people into our lives. Again, you can't help everybody. But if you and your wife pray about it and you get a sense, you know, maybe we need to step in here and be of some aid and assistance. Do it. That's where you get meaning. That's where you get joy. That's where you get significance. You're actually, you are actually living out the life of Christ and helping to redeem people in great need as he redeemed you. Where am I going? I'm sorry, I'm talking to myself. Where the heck am I going? I just blanked. Oh, I'm going to 1 Timothy 3. I'll show you this and then we'll quit. This is so important, this family leadership <clears throat> and then social leadership. Look at 1 Timothy 3. What's 1 Timothy 3? It's the character qualifications for men who are appointed to be elders in a church. Okay? It's all character. It's not where you went to school. It's not your net worth. It's not your good old boy network. It's all character. Now, it starts in verse 2, gives all the character requirements, etc., etc. Look at verse 4. The man who would be an elder must be one who manages his own household well. What's that? That's your sphere, your family, those kids. Look at the next line. Keeping his children under control with all dignity. See, that's your first line of responsibility. It's your family. You provide for them, you discipline them, you love them, you're there for them. Okay, it's in the home. Family comes first. But then watch this. Verse 5. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? If you're not doing it at home, see, you haven't, you're not qualified to do it anywhere else because you need to first do it there. That's the proving ground. And this is hard for some guys. Steve Wish, again, I wish I had heard this 25 years ago. Yeah, but you didn't. Man, if I had known this, there wouldn't have been that divorce. Yeah, but there was. So, once again, you can kill yourself with regret. So what do you do? You just take this before the Lord right now. And whatever relationships can be repaired, and whatever relationships where there's a breach with a child or a grandchild. See, this, this is what we go to do and repair. Go with me to Malachi. Actually, Malachi, the Italian prophet. If you find Matthew, go to your left. Last verse of the Old Testament. This is how God closes the Old Testament. And there's no revelation for 400 years after Malachi. Look how God's in, God ends it. Malachi 4.6. He, when he comes, and it's a reference to John the Baptist, He's referred to as Elijah, but if you look at Luke 1.17, John the Baptist fulfilled this. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Let me read that again. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. God wants there to be a connection where there's a disconnect. It was 1988, maybe 89. It was, I know it was March. 
because uh, March Madness was going on and we were watching some of the games. Um, Mary and I had three little kids. Um, I'm, I'm ballparking this. Um, I'd say Rachel was uh, nine. I would say John was uh, seven at ballpark. And Josh was four, about ready to turn five. And we just hit daylight savings time. I remember, I, I remember this. And one night after dinner, and it was still light, and it was a nice evening, we went outside and we had in our back patio, we had a basketball goal. And we get out there and just mess around. So I went out with John, and uh, he just, hey, Dad, let's go shoot basketball. So I went out there. The next thing I know, Josh comes out there. And Josh is, what, four or five? So John would shoot, and then Josh would grab the ball, and Josh would run for a touchdown, because he couldn't get the difference between football and basketball. <laughs> but we're just out there shooting hoops. And then Rachel came out and said, what are you guys doing? I said, well, come on, let's just, so we're playing horse and all that. And um, it was just normal life, you know, just normal life. Uh, we had a... We had a house I'd put 5% down on because that's all I could afford. So I didn't have much equity. Um, family room needed carpet. I mean, it really needed carpet. Um, the deck needed to be replaced. I'd seen firewood in better shape than the deck. Um, the suburban needed the transmission. I was pastoring a church, and there was some stuff at the church that was just kind of weighing on me and some stuff that had to be fixed. Anyway. And it was stuff. There was stuff weighing on me. And we're just out there shooting hoops. Then Mary came out afterwards. And we're just all out there shooting baskets and just hanging out. And, you know. And then the ball went off John's foot and went under the deck. And he said, I'll get it, Dad. And he climbs under the deck to get. And then our dog, Sugar, goes with him and is licking his face as he's trying to grab the ball. Now, I'm just standing there. And all of a sudden, it was like I saw that in freeze frame. It just froze on me. It absolutely froze. And all of a sudden, I just saw it. And I'm standing there waiting for John to get the ball. And there's Mary over by the basket. And Rachel is hugging her leg. John's underneath getting the ball. And Sugar is licking his face. And Josh is standing over on the edge, looking straight up in the air with his mouth open. And he's just staring. I have no idea what he was thinking. That's what you do when you're four or five. And it just froze in front of me, and I looked at that. I looked at that, and I thought to myself, you know what? It doesn't get any better than this. This is as good as it gets. You know why I thought of that? Because of what happened last night. Last night. Mary's trying to make chili. And we got our little seven-month-old granddaughter who she's watching while Rachel was doing something. And she's kind of fussy and Mary's trying to do this chili recipe and all that. And Mary said, could you help? Can you just feed Madeline? I said, sure. So I'm feeding this little girl who's bouncing around her little thing and it goes in her nose and, you know, and so I'm just feeding her and just feeding her. Mary's doing the chili and the phone rings and it's just kind of texting, you know, kind of, we're just, Okay. And Josh was at the house because we've been working on this book all day long and he was in that bedroom and I was in my office. And we we're kind of worn out. We we're going to eat chili and we we're going to watch the Rangers because Darvish was pitching. And it took forever to get the chili because something happened. I don't know. It's just life. And finally the chili's ready. And then Mary says, I got to put the baby down. 
Rachel's not back yet. She's going to be like, all right, you put the baby down. So Josh and I get our chili, we go in and we start watching Darvish. And about the third inning, Court comes in, my son-in-law. And he goes, where's Madeline? I said, Mary's putting her down. I said, oh. I said why don't you get some chili and, you know, we're watching the game. So we're just watching the game. And about the fourth inning, Mary comes in. And then about the sixth inning, my daughter Rachel shows up. She says, what are you guys doing? We're watching the game. Get some chili. So everyone's sitting around. And, you know, Darvish is throwing this perfect game. At the end of the seventh inning, my son John comes busting through the door with his wife, Christine. He goes, Dad, we had to come over because I think he's going to throw a perfect game. I couldn't watch it at home. I had to get over here. I said, come on in. So we're all sitting there watching this game, and we're watching Darvish, and he got to the second out in the ninth inning, and my boys go crazy. I mean, they're jumping. I mean, it's just like it used to be. It was great. And then the guy got the hit. And uh, it blew the game. But it didn't blow my night. Because you know what happened to me last night? The same thing happened to me last night that happened to me way back in 88 or 89. Because everybody's moaning and groaning. I can't believe that guy got that hit. How did that happen? All that. I, you know what happened? Freeze frame again. And I looked at that. And the only one who was missing was Josh's wife, who was with her folks in Dallas. Everybody else was there. We're eating chili, watching a baseball game. And I thought to myself, it didn't get any better than this. This is it. I'm a blessed man. Have we got our stuff? Have we got our issues? Oh, yeah. But you see, we're kind of working on it. There's some stuff right now that needs to be worked on And I'm waiting because it's not time yet. Other stuff, we got a lot of conversations going. I'm, nobody's perfect. I'm just saying, guys, this is life. And this is what we've been called to. You get married, and life's hard. You have kids, and life is hard. And we're all sinners, and we're all broken up. But you know what we do? We stay at the task. We stay under the mercy. We stay under grace. And we keep showing up and being faithful. And one day Jesus is going to come back. And it's all going to be fixed. Everybody's going to get along. And all the stuff is going to be over. In the interim, let's live according to the ordinances. Am I making sense? The whole world may go off the cliff. We don't have to. Let's show them what it looks like.